Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Armageddon Time. The United States stands for an idea whose time is now. Ronald Reagan will win tonight. What a schmuck. <laughs> I think I want to be an artist when I grow up. You're going to be an artist if you want to be. Nothing's going to stop you. You're going to college. You'll have dinner with kings if he plays his cards right. I really like your stickers. My stepbrother gave them to me. He's in the Air Force. That's so cool. <laughs> How dare you? A menace to you! Well, you're not to associate with him again. What do you mean? Why? I think you know what I mean. My parents are sending me to my brother's school. That's heavy. In this institution, you can be anything you want to be. It won't be because of a handout. It'll be because you earned your way there. Something's bugging you. What is it? Sometimes kids say bad words about the black kids. Who's that? Somebody from my old school. Did they ever come to your house? What do you do when that happens? Obviously nothing, of course. You think that's smart? My mother, you know, when we came over here, we didn't have much. Why'd she come here? Because they wanted to kill her, that's why. They were soldiers, and sometimes they go out looking for Jews. They hated us then, and they still hate us. So we got in the boat and we came over here to America, the land of dreams. You just wanted to be like you. I want you to be a whole lot better than me. Life is unfair. Be thankful when you get a leg up. You make the most of your break and do not look back. All my hopes are with you and your brother for my whole life. Next time those schmucks say anything bad about those kids, you're gonna say something. You're gonna be a manch, okay? Firm handshake. Okay, give me a hug. Alright everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Armageddon Time, and the story is as follows. Paul Graff enjoys a peaceful childhood in a New York borough, getting up to no good with Johnny, a classmate ostracized at school for the color of his skin. Paul believes himself to be shielded by his mother, who heads up the Parent-Teacher Association, and by his grandfather, to whom he is close. But one incident sees him sent to a private school, where the board is chaired by Donald Trump's father. The rampant elitism and bare-faced racism he encounters there will change his world forever. The film is starring Jeremy Strong and Hathaway, Banks Repita, 
Jalen Webb, and Anthony Hopkins. It is written and directed by James Gray. And here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Oh, well, hello. And Dan Baer. Hello, everybody. So James Gray is, I I feel like in many ways, uh, a leader in today's conversation of why cinema is just so important. If you ever heard the guy like eloquently speak about the current state of movie going, filmmaking, he always has the right, I think, frame of mind and the best stance on how to view these things, which is why like as an artist and as somebody who um, whose films I've appreciated over the years. I find him to just be a very fascinating type of filmmaker in terms of his career trajectory, the types of stories that he's always wanted to tell. And then also, too, like with his last film, Ad Astra, really dabbling into studio, like blockbuster movie making while still trying to retain a sense of artistry behind it all. And of course, like the production of that film is almost legendary at this point. Uh, But here, you know, this is his most personal film to date. It's based on his life. Uh, What is somebody's going to write a book about this someday of all these directors making these movies about their childhoods because (laughs) the pandemic has really, really brought this out like in full force. I feel like for so many of them out there, Uh, but because you have this, you've got empire of light, you got Fablemans, And then you also have um, even like a few years ago with uh, Roma last year with hand of God. So We've been seeing this kind of story get told a lot lately, uh, but James Gray uh, does have a unique approach to it in terms of the coming-of-age genre uh, that we'll get into here in a little bit, Uh, but it's also not without its flaws either. So the film did premiere at the Cannes Film Festival, where it did receive uh, pretty strong reviews overall. It's now playing in theaters from Focus Features, and I guess we'll start off first with Josh Parham. Josh? Ultimately, what did you think of his latest film, Armageddon Time? So when it comes to James Gray just in general, I would say that I'm not a dedicated super fan, but of the few films of him of his that I have seen, I do really like them. In fact, Ad Astor was in my top 10 that year, and like Lost City of Z and The Immigrant, I really liked too. So I... I do find him to be a fascinating filmmaker, even if he's not somebody that I like need to see one of his movies right away. So I was very interested in his latest project. And yeah, knowing that it was yet another one of these filmmakers reflecting back on their childhoods, you know, we've gotten a lot of them lately. And that's a little worrisome, (laughs) to be honest, in terms of how many there are. But I was still intrigued and What I found kind of interesting about this movie is that, yes, you do definitely get a sense that it is a director and a storyteller looking back on their life. But it does seem like James Gray is trying to add a little bit more commentary to it as well. He's kind of trying to look at the class distinctions that were happening around that time and sort of reconciling kind of his own placement within that and this grander narrative that's going on and. That is incredibly fascinating subject matter to explore. I will admit that I don't think the film balances all of those aspects neatly to me. It did feel like the storytelling was a bit disparate at times, a little bit disconnected, and it felt like it was trying to wrangle in a lot of things and never quite coalesced into a solid core for me. So it was an experience of me 
appreciating a lot of what I was watching, really liking the performances that were in this movie and liking the themes that were being explored, but it didn't really feel like it had a great through line at the end of the day. And that did keep me at a bit arm's length. So I'm a little mixed on this movie. I do lean positive, I think, at the end of the day, because there are still aspects of it that I did really appreciate. But it it was sort of an example where it never really had a great solid kind of foundation to build upon. So it's okay. I, I did appreciate a lot of it, but not a great movie in my opinion. All right. Okay. Dan Bear, what about you? I am kind of in the same boat as Josh. I I think this is good in many ways, but in other ways it feels like a missed opportunity. Um, the, this is dealing with a lot of really thorny critical complex issues and it sort of just glides over all of them on the top on the surface and you can make the argument that that's because you know this is sort of a coming-of-age story about someone who is young and they don't really understand the complexities of what they're witnessing but every other character in the movie should kind of at least on some level and certainly the audience does and i think there's an opportunity to delve deeper into these things that the film kind of sidesteps and i don't think it's bad i did like on a scene by scene level i i don't think there was really a bad scene in it but i also don't think there's not really a great scene either um but there are things that i like i think that um jeremy strong and anne hathaway are fantastic as a pair of jewish parents and the conversations that are had with that family around the dinner table and about education they made a lot of laughs of recognition because these were things that were like in my household (laughs) in my very jewish household these were like lines and dialogue conversations that we had they were like lifted directly from my own experience and i did laugh and i thought that was very well done um and i even think the relationship between uh banks repetta and jalen webb um is great i i love watching them together i think they're, they have a really good rapport together but oh uh anthony hopkins is really badly miscast i mm. think I, I, I was wondering where you were going to fall on this i yeah. for one second that him as a jewish grandfather no sorry he's great like from an acting standpoint yeah. he's anthony hopkins yeah but. <laughs> he's really good but he's just anthony hopkins <laughs> right it's like it's like if you said to anthony hopkins hey anthony can you play a tree and it would be the best damn performance ever because it's Anthony frickin' Hopkins. But yeah. he's still playing a tree. <laughs> yeah, and he's also given, like, the big um, sort of statement of themes lines in the movie. And th- they just kind of, like, come out and just state it, which for a film that is otherwise really kind of subtle and doesn't want to, like, reach into the more melodramatic aspects that these kind of movies generally go for, I found a little like, oh, really? But you're going to do that? Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't 
stop myself from thinking throughout that um, Anthony and um, Judd Hirsch and the Fablemans probably should have switched roles. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that movie needed Hopkins' more grounded presence, and this needed Judd Hirsch's more authentically Jewish presence. Mm. Yeah, no, actually, oh, yeah. that's a good call. Uh, yeah. But yeah, not not a bad movie, but I don't I don't know. The people who are saying this is a masterpiece, I'm kind of like, what what different cut of this movie did you see? <laughs> well, I can directly answer that because while I'm not sitting here claiming that it's a masterpiece, I will right away up front come forward and just say uh, this might be one of the most personally biased reviews um, I've ever been a part of. And the reason for that is because for me, um, and I, I didn't grow up in a Jewish household, but I grew up in a, an Italian-American suburb of New York household, not many years far removed from where this story takes place. And when I tell you that there are similarities, oh boy, are there similarities. And so many people in my own life, I saw in Anthony Hopkins' character, I saw in Jeremy Strong's character as my father, uh, my mother, and Anne Hathaway. So... A lot of times while watching this movie, I definitely had that syndrome of, oh, this feels like it's about me, um, which I really couldn't shake off and escape through a lot of this. I, I too, also went to Catholic, uh, like, private school, had to wear a uniform every single day. Uh, so th th there's a lot of overlapping here. Um, of course, growing up uh, in New York uh, helps. And then there's little tiny things. Like when we used to take a class photo in school, we had people that also would do the bunny ears to people that were sitting in front of them in the photo, like doing the disco dance to annoy the teacher when they weren't looking in, in front of like the blackboard in school. Like there are like these very tiny things, like these little details throughout where I'm like, oh, my God, yes, like take me back. And I haven't really ever watched a movie, maybe other than Boyhood, that has uh, captured those small little nuances uh, for me. So I'll say right up front that a lot of the faults of this movie that have already been pointed out here in the opening thoughts, I completely agree with a majority of them. And I recognize that the movie is not a masterpiece. It's not perfect, but there is definitely a personal bias element for me uh, that I emotionally latched onto in ways that I was not uh, expecting, especially because, uh, you know, when you have you know, Anthony Hopkins playing a character who is kind of, for me, a combination of uh, multiple like mentor figures in my family from my aunt to my grandmother and a few others. And then seeing my, my parents reflected in Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway in so many little ways. I don't want to get like too, too personal necessarily and identify like which aspects, uh, but the, like Jeremy Strong, for example, as Irving, um, as the type of like father figure who is closed off, uh, has to put up a wall uh, because he needs to be, uh, you know, the man of the household, the leader, uh, the provider for the family, uh, but while also commanding a, a deal of respect, um, it, it creates a relationship that is kind of more so rooted in respect and fear uh, than one that is uh, lovable and like somebody that you would, you know, consider like your best friend. Uh, and that's why we see Paul like really gravitating more towards like his mother or his grandfather and kind of shying away from his father. And I, I just have a very, uh, I guess, similar like experience with that. So anyway, long story short, 
I, I think the movie is good. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it's great. Uh, but for me, on a personal level, there are elements of it that like I think are great just because of how much I'm like kind of astonished that it feels like at times I'm watching uh, just aspects of my own life, if you will. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Oh, yeah, I, I felt that too. Yeah, definitely. That whole scene when they're sort of discussing how the, um, where Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong are like, you know, discussing uh, their son's education and they just like, don't know how to talk about the fact that he's good at art and nothing else. Mm, yeah. And like all of those conversations about his education, like these were conversations that I remember my parents having when I was younger because mm-hmm. like I, I was always good in school, but I was more on this. Like I was really good with reading and writing and you know, like the more, English, like, liberal arts side of things and not, like, math science, which are the things that most people consider, like, oh, those are the smart kids. Those are the the good at school kids. Not only that, but those are the, like, crucial skills that are going to help you actually be an active member of the workforce and get a good job someday. And that is the thing that, like, felt so true to me. They're like, oh, yeah, that's a good hobby. But, like, you know, you need to have a fallback. You need to have this. You need to have that. Oh, my God. Like, that, too, just in terms (laughs) of, at the time for me, like, wanting to be either an actor or just get in the movie business, like, somehow as a kid. Like, I, you know, back then, that's what I thought I wanted to be was an actor. (laughs) And that, that too, Dan, of, like, the pat on the head there, there. Very, very sweet baby boy, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even the um the big family dinner scene where you know mom is like we've 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 gotten fish and it's very nice and you're going to love it and you know oh the kid immediately God. going like I'm going to order dumplings I'm like yep fish is disgusting <laughs> or at least it was when I was a kid <laughs> and like the disrespect too um the, like the defiance because Paul's just at that age where. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily young, but he's not necessarily a mature young man yet. Ivory, yeah. he's like caught in between. Hence, coming of age. Um, but one thing that I really like about Armageddon Time compared to some other coming of age movies is how much I feel that even though I just went on about my own personal connections to the nostalgia of this movie, I do feel that it is lesser on the nostalgic side yeah. and more about trying to 
speak to uh, grander themes outside of what the genre typically provides. Like, this is not, I don't think, like a feel-good movie, as many coming-of-age films tend to be. This movie actually has a lot more on its mind, socially, politically, just on that macro level. And I think that's the thing about it that separates it from me. And even though I recognize that it's a little messy in its execution, I admire that James Gray wanted to take a very familiar and kind of, you know, I would say kind of bland genre and try to make it about something bigger than what the genre typically provides. Yeah, yeah. do love that it took the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia off almost completely. Oh, for sure. And I think that's an element that I did appreciate about it for as messy and disjointed as I found the storytelling to be at many points. I did very much like that James Gray did sort of subvert the expectation of what we normally get with this. And, you know, we don't get the scene where he's as a kid in the movie theater and like falling in love with movies. And that's, you know, a a big through line. Like we get one shot of them going to the theater and it's after the movie's already done. So it doesn't really revel in that kind of nostalgia. It really seems to want to almost like look back at that time and, and present this idea that, yeah, this is how life really was. And actually kind of reconciling with the good and the bad of, of that time in his life. And I do appreciate that very much from a storytelling perspective. I just wish that it its themes were a little bit stronger and were kind of attacked in a more, as, as I said, like a, a stronger through line throughout its narrative. Because what we do get just feels like a bit meandering and not in a sense mm-hmm. that I found to be very enveloping in terms of its in terms of like a natural storytelling progression, it just sort of felt like we were moving from scene to scene with these really interesting ideas, but not a great way to connect them all. Yeah, I feel that Josh, it was very much like there wasn't much forward momentum pushing the story along. It was just like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Yeah. Um, And I do wish that there had been more of a through line, even stylistically. And I think that was the thing that really got me about this. He has these little stylistic flourishes that show up in the beginning and then maybe like once more. And given that this film is so generally speaking naturalistic, I, I was like, well, why, why would you just put that in? for like these one shot or two shots. And I tried to think about like thematic connections and was not finding any. <laughs> I didn't mind. Uh, there's like a moment where I think it's Anne Hathaway uh, closes like the door to his yes! room. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's done like in this very ominous, like sort of way. I didn't mind Why? that part, but I did not like the Guggenheim museum fantasy sequence where, Paul's uh, drawing of like a superhero is being praised by everybody. I thought that was very odd and kind of just shoved in there in a way that didn't feel at at peace with everything else. Okay, I loved that. I thought that sequence was really cute. (laughs) (laughs) But that like the shot with Anne Hathaway, like that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like it's this really like she is in silhouette and it like slowly fades out and it's like this horror movie moment and. I have no clue why. And there are other kind of moments where it does that really slow fade out. And, but 
it, it's not enough to be like a full like this is a stylistic thing that we're doing. Yeah, I mean, like even Anthony Hopkins is a big monologue in the movie, like the slow push in and also kind of creating like that dark, ominous feeling surrounding it, at least for the content that he's describing in terms of um, his his parents uh, immigrating over to this country because they wanted to kill uh, his family. And at least for that, it made sense, given the context of like what he was telling uh, Paul. But yeah, I, I'm kind of with you, Dan. Like, I, I, I get what you mean in terms of there are these moments throughout where it, it just feels like a stylistic flourish that on one hand, like I, I appreciated it. But on the other hand, I, I, too, didn't feel like it was matching with what the rest of the movie was providing. Um, but like, here's what I did like um, at the end of the film. There's kind of this brief montage moment of all of like the empty rooms the empty rooms in the house that he grew up in, the empty room of the classroom where he had school. Um, like, and, and I don't know if you guys remember that moment, but like something like that, I also kind of appreciated in terms of like a, um, I don't want to say nostalgic standpoint, because once again, it doesn't feel nostalgic so much. It just feels more of this is a time, this was a place, this is where my formative years really began. And now, um, you know, everything has moved on and these people are not, very more um but like i don't know there there were many moments like that throughout this movie yeah the, i did the like that flourishes do kind of feel like they're inconsistent i think that's the problem it's like they're they're yeah. very interesting when they show up i remember another one that happens later in the film where there's like a a montage of images of the kid kind of imagining a future for himself. Yes. Yeah. 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 Was yeah. Like super fascinating, but it does feel very incongruous to the more naturalistic setting that is the majority of this film. So I think that maybe also adds to my frustration with the storytelling is that it is all fascinating choices, but they don't all go together at the same time. And now I, I know the point of like, real debate with this movie is the way that it handles race relations here between Paul and uh, his his friend um, yep <laughs> uh, Johnny in this movie and this is very interesting because I would never sit here and tell you all that James Gray had bad intentions with making this movie I don't think that that is the case at all I actually think that he is telling it like it is here is a kid who has white privilege and as an adult with years of experience obviously has white guilt and is putting it all out there uh for everyone to hear and in terms of well do we really care is it necessary what are we learning from it and like good for you like i'm glad you got your shit sorted out but what is like the grander message here of what we're supposed to take from this you know what i mean and i think that maybe on a more macro level like i said speaking to um reagan politics and also to the attitudes of like politically moderate households at the time where casual like racism was kind of sprinkled in even though uh like a, a household would take a defiant stance on saying no we are not racist in any way shape or form like our people have been persecuted like we are in total support of all people of color but yet there are still these like lines of dialogue that find their way into this household where you can definitely sense that they are othering uh other, other people and whether it's by d intention or not 
Um, it's still there. It still exists. And I think like James Gray's approach to this is like taking like an as matter of fact, like I'm not trying to sugarcoat. I'm not trying to Hollywoodize this. Like this is what really happened and this is the way it was. Take of it what you will. But the problem is, is that when we do take of it what we will, there's not much to really take. Yeah, that's the, yeah. That's the ultimate problem that I come away with with that particular narrative thread. And and I'm mixed on it because I do understand what he is going for. And obviously he is coming at this from a very particular perspective and he's trying to wrestle with those notions of, yes, kind of white privilege and white guilt and looking back on that and how the times were very you know, unfair at that moment. And like, I, I get it. I do. And I, a part of me appreciates that he's willing to explore that within a very personal realm when a lot of filmmakers tend to not look at that at all and don't do that kind of self-reflection within their own stories. But the problem is that it does like with a lot of stuff in this movie, because it does feel a little disconnected at times. It also means that we can't get a full exploration and we're not really meant to, I think, at the end of the day, because this does come from this kid's perspective. But, yeah, I found myself really wanting a lot more from the Johnny character and the backstory that he is given. I uh, I, I don't know if I'm in favor of all of those decisions to make his life, like, really miserable. Like, I understand he's underprivileged, but I don't know. It, it, it rubbed me up the wrong way a little bit with just, like, how underprivileged he was in comparison. I was going to say, because there's only one scene in the entire movie that breaks away from Paul's perspective, and it's a scene where we see Johnny mm-hmm. at home with his grandmother. And I'm just curious, Josh, did, did you feel like that scene was necessary given the fact that it is the only scene that breaks away from Paul's perspective? No, not not really. I, I don't think the context of which we see that scene get, gives you a great impact in the first place and really just kind of provided more evidence of just sort of telegraphing to the audience of like, look how bad this black kid has it. And it painted that character in very broad strokes for a larger narrative commentary that I just didn't find to be that interesting. And when the trade-off is that, you know, your only black character is not really given that much nuance or complexity, that, that is kind of a detriment in the story to me. Yeah, I... I th- that was another one of those things where, like, I would have liked to have seen more from his perspective if you're going to do that. Right. Like, it was one of those things where, like, okay, like, but why this scene now when we have spent the whole movie following, you know, this, this, when we spent the whole movie following Paul, why this one scene? from Johnny's perspective and why this scene. Yeah. It didn't even feel like it was really necessary. Partially because I think Jalen Webb is so good in that role. And he's so good at like the, the script and James Gray's direction. There are a lot of mm, sort of, I guess you could call them microaggressions toward Johnny throughout the throughout the film and it really never hits you over the head with like you know this is because he's black it's always couched in something else but you can see that he at, uh, understands and interprets that it is because of 
his skin color. Oh, yeah, though. I think Johnny is well aware. And yeah. if he's not, they have that scene on the train where mm-hmm. the two older black men, like, come up to him yeah. because they see that this kid is enjoying life, I guess, and being happy with another white kid. And they basically, like, go out of their way to tell him, you ain't going to amount to shit because they're never going to let you. And I just was like, oh, yeah. I, I got hit in the gut by that scene so, so much of how one's environment um, that surrounds them can just completely change their trajectory of their life and have such a significant impact. We are mostly experiencing this with Paul in terms of his household, the politics of the time, and people's behavioral attitudes and how that could have pushed Paul to be one way, uh, but we see that he goes another way. And here they try to do the same thing, I think, with Johnny, where it's like the politics of the time, the attitudes of the time are basically telling Johnny he's not going to amount to anything because of the color of his skin. And that is really, really upsetting because this kid is still at an age where uh, like life is full of possibilities. And you can tell that there is an awareness that he knows his life is more difficult than Paul's, but also at the same time, he's still a young kid, you know? Yeah. So I I did, like, appreciate, once again, like, James Gray's intention here because this movie is, like, speaking to more complex and grander uh, themes and also trying to weave in some really, really complicated subject matter that you got to, you know, delicately uh, talk about um, in, in a way that... It's tough to reckon with because I do think that, especially like you know, speaking for myself as as a white you know kid growing up, uh, a guy too, might I add, like I never as a kid like thought about the concept of white privilege, like ever. Mm-hmm. It was like a foreign idea to me. But do I remember also being in similar circumstances as Paul, where I could tell I was tr- being treated differently? Absolutely, completely. Definitely remember this, for sure. And it wasn't until later in life that I realized what exactly it was. So I guess to like see that captured here in a way where it doesn't feel cliche to me, mm-hmm. um, I, I, I just like really appreciate like kind of the as matter of fact approach that Gray took with it. Although I recognize that that approach also lends itself to the movie not giving, as Josh said, a fervor exploration. Yeah, and I think that's, I agree, like, I liked that he's tackling these sort of really thorny, complex topics without resorting to cliche. I did like that. Like, that he wasn't hitting us over the head with it. Or trying to give us, like, a rose-colored, like, happy ending, if you yeah. will, either. Yeah. yeah, I did like that there was not a happy ending. That um, Although I'm have different issues with the execution of the ending, but that's for later. <laughs> the thing that I kept coming back to, and this is partially like my, you know, the Jewish side of me. And I don't think I've ever seen another movie that really did sort of interrogate the Jews and our relationship to the civil rights movement and to black Americans. And that has been very complicated throughout the years and i did kind of appreciate how they went about that conversation how 
the family like kind of doesn't even realize in some ways how they're being privileged because right them they this isn't this isn't privilege this is something that they have you know worked hard for and working for what is important so that their children can have a better life and you know it's not a slight to anyone else we're not racist but we have to take care of our own first well i also don't think that the movie because i think the movie could have like easily fallen into a trap of oh, let's compare anti-Semitism to black racism. Yeah, and they didn't really. Right. Which I thought was good. But I liked how they sort of showed that, like, this environment that they, that, you know, the people in it think of as kind of, you know, warm and loving and caring and supportive can actually be toxic in ways that they they have no concept of while they're in it. And I, I, I kind of wish that we had they had maybe shown more of that on the sort of parallel track of Johnny's life kind of and I say kind of because like I I worry a little bit how about how that would have gone yeah (laughs) (laughs) but I but I think that that would have been a more um interesting engaging version of this story potentially yeah, that, that is always that is always the issue I come yeah. to when when these uh, kind of problems do pop up in these types of stories is that for as much as I would like more exploration with Johnny's character, there is a part of me that's like, but do I trust James Gray to deliver? This? Right. <laughs> but then at the same time, it's like, well, James Gray was the one that opened the door. Like he is the one that introduced mm-hmm. this element within the story to begin with. And you can't just do a half measure on it. And while I do appreciate the complexities within these like different groups and their relationships with privilege and persecution, like all of that is fascinating. It does mean that one is going to get more of an analysis, a more deeper analysis than the other does. And it's hard for me to just dismiss the other side, not really getting the same treatment, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. As I said before, it's very, very thorny stuff here because on one hand, you want to establish this relationship that Paul has with Johnny, while on the other hand, too, you also want to speak to that Jewish-American experience and also the uh, microtransgressions that uh, that community has also suffered, and not to mention, of course, uh, the history like dating decades back, going back to like Anthony Hopkins' character and what he also had to go through as well. So there's two interesting and dark uh, histories at play here that the movie's trying to grapple with. And I don't think it's ever coming ahead and saying, oh, well, like this um, this oppression is worse or, you know, than the other um, or, you know, I don't think the movie's like trying to do that, but I could see how some people could walk away from it and being like a white filmmaker talking about white privilege, talking about this and that and so on and so forth. And it's like I could totally see how, you know, anyone of, of color especially is watching this and thinking yeah, man, just like stay in your lane. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. But, they're, they're, but to give the movie credit, though, I, I will say this, that while it does not do a good job in, I think, focusing in on the underprivileged nature of communities of color around this time, the complexities of the Jewish experience of this time mm-hmm. where you are 
at the receiving end of persecution, but you kind of can exist in this weird realm where you can attach yourself closer to the establishment. And especially in 1980 with the rise of Reaganism and the conservative movement on the horizon, like how that fits into that larger narrative. I did like that complexity. I did like those elements of the storytelling. Well, yes. let me ask you this question then. If that, you know, how did you feel about that being exemplified then by the inclusion of the Trumps into the storyline? I mean, that was a little heavy handed. I, I <laughs> you know, we maybe could have done with that that a little bit. Although I have to say that the guy that played Fred Trump, he's not in it very much, but he just had such a great presence and was so yes. that like I, I did John really like Deal. that. Yeah, I, John Deal. I really did like the presence that he brought to that very brief role. But yeah, the inclusion of the actual Trumps, yeah, it's a little on the nose, but it does color the the whole environment that we are in in this movie, I think, very well at the same time. And that is a, is a complexity that really doesn't get explored in films that much, this sort of subset of white privilege that has to also be mixed in with another type of persecution of a group that you're in. And that to me is really fascinating. Yeah. I got when Fred Trump showed up in this movie, it took me out of the movie a little bit because up to that point it was like, okay, like semi autobiographical and like kind of a little bit, not completely true, maybe, but then Fred Trump shows up and it's like, Oh, this is like real, real. Okay. And, but I, again, like seeing him in that scene sort of, again, like highlighted, like I really wanted him and Johnny to like go at it about, <laughs> I mean, I wanted him and Paul to go at it about Johnny somehow. I, th I that would have been like really fun. I mean, and then also like, no, that would not have been probably well done at all. And certainly not true to life, but <laughs> again it's like one of those things where like i saw him and i instantly like knew that like it was instant like context granted to the type of school where they were paying so much money to send their children and i'm like you know if they're you know if fred trump is there like they're probably not so friendly towards the Jews either. Yeah. And I liked that they kind of, they, they left that unsaid, but they definitely captured the unease around that. It's sort of, I think, through Banks or Petta's performance, who, like, I don't think that he gives a great performance necessarily, but there are moments in which he's really, really good. It feels very authentic to me. Yeah. Like it wasn't a cutesy child performance. Um, it just felt very lived in to me, something that just felt completely authentic. And I, I think the scene read for me, like I latched on to probably the most was uh, the back to back scene of when he gets in trouble at school for smoking with uh, Johnny uh, smoking mm -hmm. weed and the way he is with his mother after, you know, getting out of the principal's office and thinking like, oh, I dodged a bullet. But then, oh, crap, I actually have to go home now and mm -hmm. deal with my parents' wrath. Oof, that kid was a brat. <laughs> he was a little bit. Oh, he yeah. deserved it for sure. But it's interesting because like, you know, at that age and I, I went through this as well, you kind of go through like a reckless, careless stage where 
you don't realize that your actions do have consequences or are mm. going to potentially set you down a different path in life. Or that you're just having fun with your friends. Right. Yeah. No, completely agree. Totally. And so when he got home and he ran to the bathroom, locked <laughs> the door because he knew his father was coming, I was like, oh, my God. Like, Because I remember, like, too, like, my mother was – Definitely, she can get she can get a little thorny, and you know, definitely a little little uh, little intense. But it was it was my father that I was terrified of, and like the way that James Gray shot that scene, the way Jeremy Strong uh, played it, the way that Banks uh, Repita acted in it as well, like that to me was almost like a trigger horror movie, like warning of PTSD for me in a lot of ways, um, but. I got to give Jeremy Strong credit, too, in this movie. I actually think that he is really, really, really good here. And I wish that he had just one or two scenes more um, because I I feel like he's somewhat in the, you know, best supporting actor conversation, but more like in the bottom five of a ten, not necessarily in the top five. And but yet the scenes that he does have here, both in that moment of, of volcanic you know rage, but also too like the pep talk that he gives him at the end of the film in the car. I, I mean, I think Jeremy Strong is just wonderful in this. Yeah, my favorite That's, in the film. Yeah, that scene in the car is so good. I, I do think that sometimes the accent was a bit much. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, but only because like it's like it's Jeremy Strong, and we sort of know how he talks. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> so I was like, uh, like, okay, like I get it. You really wanted to make sure you got this accent right. Okay, you can stop pushing it so hard now. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's also like juxtaposing it against Anthony Hopkins, who yes! I'm pretty sure still has his Welsh accent. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> and and I think like, they try to like uh, pass it off by saying like he resides in London. I think they say at one point, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He's like, we came over from Liverpool. And I mean, okay. <laughs> okay. But it's interesting because, like, my my grandfather actually did like come over from England to the United States and lived here for like you know the rest of his life. He came over when he was like, uh, I think like eighteen or something like that, and lived here for the rest of his life. And we found a like recording that he had made back when he first came over, and his voice was like unrecognizable he was speaking in an accent that we could not recognize especially compared to how he talked now so listening to anthony hopkins in this not have any taste of a new york accent i was like come on oh my god yeah (laughs) so i I definitely do understand that with jeremy strong that yeah his the, the voice work can seem a little distracting, but at the same time, it still felt very authentic to that character. And yes. and that yeah. character also just has so much complexities within him. Yeah, that scene at the end that in the car, I think, does not go in – maybe it goes in a direction that you think, but not in the way that you would expect it to. Yes. And I think the way that conversation unfolds is in a very interesting way. And the notes that Jeremy Strong plays in that scene and the way that he does in the entire film is – very intriguing to me. I, as I said, I think that he is the best performance in this film. Yeah, I think that he gets at that sort of white guilt in a way that is that feels actually interesting and like he is really wrestling with it. Yes. As opposed to the rest of the film that is kind of like, I'm sorry, I feel bad. Mm-hmm. But there's also, too, another element uh, to it as well as um, somebody who – 
yeah, he, he's he's a blue collar worker type. Uh, he's somebody that fixes uh, people's appliances and things like that. And you can tell that while he is a provider for his family, the real like head of the household, if you will, is really Anthony Hopkins. Uh, and so let, let, let's just say that like even Jeremy Strong, what I think that his character was able to successfully communicate over to me is that even in adult life, you're still going to go through challenges and ways of trying to display moments of character um, that I'm trying to think of, of, of the way to put this exactly, but you can tell that he's somebody who uh, is almost not ready to assume like the position of head of the household uh, over Aaron uh, Rabinowitz's character. I'm sorry, uh, Anthony Hopkins' character, Aaron, in this movie. Do you guys know what I'm getting at? I, like, I feel like I'm not doing a good job of explaining it properly. Yeah, I think what you're saying makes sense. Like, he he does not. He doesn't feel that he's ready for that, like, sort of mantle of responsibility. Right. And I think it's because he he knows his family is not wealthy and they're not yeah. like, so super well off. They're still going through their own struggles. And mm-hmm. it, it's I, I just found I found that bit of it to be interesting of how, yes, they have a house. And yes, like, you know, Paul's going to school and all that. But like they, they still have struggles that they are still going through, like financially and also personally, I think, as a family as well. Because you see, um, you know, the relationship between Esther and Irving. Uh, also have its ups and downs in this uh, too. And I, I want to give credit to Anne Hathaway here a bit because I feel like she doesn't get enough credit in general. Uh, <laughs> but I actually do think that she is uh, quite good here as well. Uh, and once again, another example of a performance where I just wish that she had just a tad bit more to do because what she was doing in this movie, um, I really related to. I thought she was fantastic. She completely like sort of to me, like subsumed herself into this role of this middle-aged Jewish PTA home economics teacher. <laughs> you know, like I, I bought everything she said. And there's this one moment when uh, she says to to Paul, like, I-, "I can't help you anymore. You're going to have to. It's going to your father now." Like, and I was like, "Oh, I recognize that that look. I recognize that tone of voice." Yeah, it's very like I love it Ugh. when she's serving the bagels to everybody with the locks, and she says to Paul, "Your waffles coming soon." <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, "Yup, yup." <laughs> it was just like the, their little details to her performance that I was like, "Hello, mom." <laughs> well, this goes back to what I was saying to you earlier, right? About how. There are these identifiable moments in it that, like, I think some people, not everyone, but some people will have a more personal connection with because it so accurately captures, I think, what a lot of us grew up with, with our own uh, parents and family households that it kind of then does. I I mean, I'm trying not to, but it does, I think, paint like my review of the movie in a more positive light as a result uh, because it's hard for me to shit on what is ultimately a very, I think, just like accurate capture of what I experienced growing up myself, you know? I get yeah. that. And I certainly get that um, that instinct and the wanting the 
the fact that like that sort of colors what you're doing, you know, how you're ultimately viewing the film. But for me, it it's still, you know, a, a work of art that I had to judge. And as much as I related to so much of what was going on and did sort of like what it was trying to do, I can still recognize that I just, it just didn't do what it wanted to do super well. And this became very apparent to me when I saw it with a public audience, because I saw it originally at Telluride, where the response to it was pretty warm and really good. But when I saw it recently for a second time, the general feeling coming out of the theater from everybody was, that's it? That's what that movie was about? And that's the thing, like, I don't, there's a way to do like the sort of coming of age kind of episodic kind of meandering plot thing and still have it feel like it is centered around a core of something that is very strong. This one to me, and I, I don't think it's alone in this about in the sort of like directors looking back on their childhood thing this year, it felt like that core was not as strong as it needed to be. Yeah. Cause it is interesting to walk away from this movie and thinking like, that's it. Because I think the movie is actually about a lot of things. There's a, mm -hmm. a ton of stuff here in terms of its themes that it's trying to explore. The problem is that it, the way that it it executes that exploration, I just found to be kind of lacking. And yeah. because it didn't really feel like we had a central singular narrative to really, or at least thematic narrative to really kind of attach ourselves to, it felt kind of disparate to me. I think you do get to the end of the movie and there is a feeling of emptiness, even though that emptiness is not there in the story. There is a lot to dissect, but you don't really feel like, the journey in which you go on to dissect all of these themes is all that satisfying because they don't really connect in the strongest of ways. All right, let's get over to final thoughts here. Um, does anybody have uh, anything else they want to mention here about Armageddon Time that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Uh, if we can start off first with Dan Baer. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Um, is there anything else that I wanted to say about Armageddon Time? I mean, look, you cast Tova Felcha as a Jewish grandmother. I'm going to be appreciative. She's, she's great. I wish she had more to do. But she certainly got the look and the the uh, the uh, the look and the sound of that particular type of character down. Pat loved it. Other than that, I don't think I really I I I kept trying to figure out why um, he called it Armageddon Time and why that particular song was 
uh, used as a through line, and I'm not really sure I got it outside of like the whole Reagan thing. Yeah, I mean, like that is what it is. Ultimately, it's that it's this changing moment when everybody realized that I think everything was about to fundamentally change socially forever in this country. And it represented the end of uh, a time of innocence. And I think that can be applied to both uh, Paul on a personal level and then also to just society on a more grander level. It is a weird title for the movie, though, I will admit. Yeah, especially since, like, Armageddon Time, it's sort of, like, has this portent of doom to it. Mm-hmm. And other than that one weird shot of Anne Hathaway, it, it, this story doesn't really have that feeling. Right, right. Which was, again, like, like why with just, like, why just that shot? And why of her? I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. The scene that I did like, I liked whenever they sort of, uh, explored Paul's interest in art whenever he was drawing and how everyone sort of reacted to it. I thought that was one of the stronger elements of the screenplay. I particularly liked um, when he draws the picture of the rocket in what I assume was an art class at at the private school. And the teacher's like, well, this is really well done. Not the assignment, so please do the assignment, but I'm going to take this. And the kids, you know, it's like, well, what are you going to do with it? And she's like, mind your business. And then when he, when they come back to the school later to steal the computer, he sort of gets, he stops in his tracks when he sees it up in like the display case. I, I thought that was really well done. And I liked everything that they sort of did script-wise with him being a more artistic uh, person in a in a culture that doesn't devalue art and artists necessarily, but kind of says like put puts it off to the side and says that's not really that's not a viable career path. That's not a viable life path for you right like Irving wants him to get in, into computer graphics like yeah. that's a growth industry <laughs> yeah and which was which was really interesting like when he was when uh when he was sort of like first looking at the computer I was like he's gonna like he's gonna finally start doing computer graphics and he's gonna be set on that path now and instead no it was we're gonna steal a computer to fund going to floor running away to Florida <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right. Yeah. Josh Parm, any final thoughts? I think the only thing that I would mention here at the end is to briefly bring up Jessica Chastain's, like, cameo, essentially, <laughs> in this movie. Distracting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, we all love Jessica Chastain, but yes. I do think that her inclusion was a distraction. I agree with you, Matt. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I... I Wish that had just been Fred Trump. We already said, like, that was mm. a great kind of screen presence that John Deal brings. And I think that if he had given that speech, it would have been just as impactful and probably even more so. I think I I really don't know why Jessica Chastain is in this movie at all. I, I think that 
it, her inclusion really just kind of pulled me out of the movie immediately at that moment. And, and it felt like it was just to underline the theme of the film, which I didn't need underlining at that point. I think that, like I said, had it just been Fred Trump delivering the speech, it would have been just as fine because he's good in the movie. There's a scene earlier with Fred Trump actually where he's talking with Paul and they talk about his last name and the chill ran down my spine when he actually admitted he was Jewish right in front of him. Like very, very kind of disturbing moment without much. Yep. <laughs> so, so like I, I really felt like you could have just extended that aura with that character and into that moment in that speech and didn't need to be given by Mary Trump. I, I love Jessica Chastain, but not in this movie. But then again, I bet you if you ask, you know, James Gray, he would say, well, she was the one who actually gave the speech. And that she's a woman, too, giving that speech. I think there is another kind of commentary about that, too. I just found that whatever we would get from that character, it was undermined by having a very, very famous person play that role. Agreed. It would have been like instead of John Deal uh, for Fred Trump, if they would have had like Harvey Keitel. <laughs> yeah, I just – you, it was oh fine Lord. with how it started. Yeah, it was fine with how it was, but then just her inclusion, it took me out of the movie, and I didn't really care for that. Agreed. Yeah, I, I too thought it was a little distracting, for sure. And the fact that it's only the one scene, she never pops up again. Mm. Um, I, I get that the speech is impactful and is kind of a summary in many ways of what the film is ultimately about. I, so yeah. I, I understand that and wanting to accentuate that moment. But... Yeah. Yeah. Ha having her there felt like telling the audience, like shouting at them, this is the theme of the movie. And I just didn't need to be shouted at at that moment. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. That's totally fair. Anything else? I mean, outside of that, I, I do think the movie is very interesting. I think it has a lot of fascinating things in it. I wish that it came together stronger for me. And but I do appreciate so much of what James Gray is trying to do with kind of taking this coming of age, director reflecting back on their childhood and actually trying to explore the darker elements of that, which I don't think a lot of filmmakers who take on this subject matter have the courage to do. So I give them a lot of points for it. The execution sometimes left a lot to be desired for me, but just the attempt I have such admiration for, and it, it still continues to be a reason why I do really like him as a filmmaker. Yeah, the only other thing I'll say is my final thought here. Um, I really, really, really like the scene of Paul and his grandfather um, lighting off the rocket. Yeah, that, that was a good scene, although it, it did kind of strike me as like this is supposed to be the big moment, you know, sort of one of those life-defining uh, moments for Paul with mm -hmm. his grandfather. And the way that Anthony Hopkins delivers that speech felt a little – a little loose to me, which I guess fits the character, but it kind of felt like for a moment that seemed to be such had to have such importance, it didn't really kind of the delivery of those lines felt a little a little flat to me, if I'm gonna be honest. Well, I think what I appreciated about it is that you have a an, an older person who is imparting this wisdom onto this young kid and he's asking him to listen to him in this moment, but you can tell that really all Paul wants to do is go blast off this rocket. <laughs> and so the, the scene has to like really like thread like a fine line between being serious and not making like a joke out of what is being said while also conveying that 
Yeah, Paul's listening, but he doesn't still fully get it. Like, he might remember this conversation, and clearly James Gray did. Uh, but I don't know. Like, in the moment, I would think that any kid, like, Paul's age, um, like, yeah, like, it's like, yeah, I'm listening, but I'm not really listening, you know? Yeah, I think it goes back to how much, as we said, how Anthony Hopkins, I just think, is miscast in this role. And yeah. He, as much as I do love him, I just really had a hard time buying the character just in general because yeah, Anthony Hopkins is just not a Jewish grandfather. He's a great actor. He's not a Jewish grandfather. And trying to instill this wisdom in this moment, I just – I was always at arm's length with just buying that character in general. So even though what he says has a great impact on the story and, and Paul in that moment – I just had a hard time, like, fully connecting with that scene. You know who it was supposed to be originally? It was supposed to be Robert De Niro. Lord. I, think, <laughs> I mean, another one that I'm not completely convinced that would have worked either, but it's a little better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, like, it needed an authentically Jewish person in that part to really make it believable. And to have the kind of – I think the thing that I was missing from Hopkins' performance was, like, the the passion – yeah. For lack of a better word, um, like it, I think that that scene is sort of like emblematic of this film's problems to me. It's like it's this very there. There is a lot of meat in that scene for the for the film to play and for the actors to play, and it could have it certainly could have gone like overboard into like sticky kind of tacky movie of the week melodrama. And it avoids that completely, but a little bit of that would have gone a long way to selling it and making it more impactful, uh, at least for me. I think the whole thing is sort of underplayed too much. I think that's very interesting because I think the like, first time I saw it, I was just so struck by so many of the things that I identified with in this movie that it really – just painted like this image for me of like, oh my God, I love this movie. I love this movie. This movie is like like a comfort movie for me in many ways. Um, watching it a second time, the flaws became a lot more apparent uh, once I knew what I was, you know, in for and what I was going to experience. And while like I still acknowledge that a lot of the moments in this movie that I like self-identify with are still there. They haven't gone away. I do fully recognize that everything surrounding it is a bit rocky and maybe not as strong as I, I was both hoping for and also thought it was on that first viewing. Um, I still do, like Josh, though, think that there is some really intriguing ideas and some of the execution, too, is... I give Gray just credit in general for making a coming of age movie that feels like it is so much more grounded and mature and is trying to deal with something bigger than what the genre typically uh, goes for. But yeah, it's it, it's still flawed for me. I think out of Telluride, I was definitely, you know, an eight out of 10, like gut reaction moment at the at the time. Uh, but now having seen it a second time, I, I would probably downgrade it to a seven. I still would recommend people watch it because I think it's actually like a really good conversation starter when you really break it down, uh, both for its uh, faults and also for its positives. But uh, ultimately, I don't think this is uh, one of Gray's 
finest movies, even though it is his most personal. And I admire that he's willing to put himself out there because there's definitely been a lot written about this movie and, you know, what what he takes from that moving forward or what we can all take from that moving forward just in terms of how we tell stories, whose stories are ours to tell and so on and so forth, even when it is this personal uh, and this close to what ultimately really did happen to him because I, I got to speak to him about this movie and like he did say that the reason why the movie is devoid of cliche is that because it skews so closely to what actually like really happened uh, and whether that makes for a good movie in someone else's mind is that 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 is the topic that's up for conversation here so seven out of ten for me bear what about you uh, I am at a six out of ten okay Josh I am with Dan, uh, 6 out of 10. Mixed, but do lean positive on it. Okay, do we see any awards potential for Armageddon Time? Because I got to tell you, there's a part of me that thinks that while it's not an overt awards season contender, there's like this tiny, tiny part of me that wonders if James Gray, and I started the podcast by saying this, like, I feel like he has just so much respect within the filmmaking community. And because this is such a personal story to him, there's a part of me that wonders if his screenplay could contend uh, throughout this award season. They did just receive a Gotham Award nomination. So, yeah, I think that would be the only place, honestly, like I think Anthony Hopkins does have a lot of respect, too, but I don't know if that performance will really crack a five. But I could see there was a certain point while watching this movie, like a few scenes in the beginning where I was like, oh, my God, are we about to witness another Anthony Hopkins potential Oscar nomination here? (laughs) Yeah, but no, never say never. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, you never know for sure, but I do think the more likely scenario is that the writer's branch may finally come around to James Gray and kind of give him a career nomination. Like, he's not going to win for this, but I could see a world in which there's enough admiration and respect for him to just get him this sort of consolation prize of a nomination. That said, original screenplay is a very, very crowded this year, yeah. and I don't know if there is a space for for him, but I could see him very much being in the conversation for it. I think my thing is that, like, if he has not gotten nominated previously, what makes us think that this is the one, especially when there are other films this year that are sort of this kind of genre that are sucking up all the air in the room? Oh, yeah. The fact that this is going to have to be in direct competition with Fableman's and original screenplay. I mean, I think that immediately right there could muscle it out. And like even Bardo to an extent. Yeah. Like they're both about these older filmmakers looking back on their lives. Yeah. And I feel like this is the one that is sort of like going to get lost in the shuffle, partially because it 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 is like so much more mixed people's reactions on it, I think. I say watch out for this with like some of the critics groups because yeah. there are some critics, very prominent critics, might I add, who love this movie. Like you said earlier, Dan, there's like this kind of masterpiece label that's been slapped onto it by some people. And I could see it like popping up in a few precursors for even things like best picture and things like that here or there. Um, But there's also just a part of me that thinks that when all is said and done, and as much as I want Jeremy strong to get a role that's going to get recognized by the Academy at some point, I think that this role is just shy of making that happen. A part of me thinks that this movie is going to cap with, you know, a few critics mentions, some Independent Spirit Award nominations, and that'll be it. 
Yeah, that's about where I'm at, too. <laughs> yeah, that that's the trajectory I see for it. Like, it will be in the conversations. It will get some mentions here or there, but it does have an uphill battle, I think, to climb in original screenplay specifically. And I don't really see any of the actors getting in either. I think screenplay is really the only shot, and that's going to be very difficult. I really feel like... Each of them, Halfway, Strong, Hopkins, they each had like one or two more scenes, like showcase moments that they could have been seriously in play, I think, because I think the characters are so endearing and so nostalgic for a lot of people watching the movie that I, I, I could have seen a world where voters would have went for one of them. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, that'll do it here for our review of Armageddon Time here on the Next Best Picture Podcast. Josh Parham, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Dan Bear. And you can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.